I'm Andrew Junker with Roman Honeycutt. Hi. And this is why we do this. Episode 21 of Why We Do This. You know, one of the things that we need to be conscious of when we're putting these out is that these are recorded in the past. (laughs) This one is from actually the end of last year. Our guest is Adrian Elliott, who is awesome, talented uh, filmmaker and is a really good friend of ours. First time I met him, I was actually was on a production with Mimi Cave, who directed, and then Devin Whetstone shot. And so Adrian at the time was an art director. And so part of what we talk about is the breadth of work that he's done, the different types of roles, and why he's explored uh, some of those avenues for sort of what he sees as his main kind of goal being a director, creative director, and just overall filmmaker. One of the things that uh, Roman and I have been talking about is sort of for us understand what we want to get out of these conversations, being more intentional, trying to find what the themes are. And so for me, I think, and we can talk through this a little bit, but this episode I think is a great segue into starting to do that. We talk a lot about this idea of the responsibility of the filmmaker, what's possible with film, both in sort of the narrative world and in kind of a little bit, we touch on kind of the idea of like documentaries, but really like narrative film as a tool for either change or awareness or or deeper understanding. Adrian's a very outspoken political person. And it's interesting because I've always known him as like a director on like client kind of gigs and things like that. So it was really cool for me to hear that side of him, mm-hmm. you know, hear the desire for him to want to do that in his own work and also see it in more of uh, our, our work of our peers and out in the mainstream. Absolutely. So we start the conversation a little bit about both how he sees kind of his role and the work that he does and then getting a little bit into his backstory about uh, how he really got into this work. <laughs> When I was a creative director at a design firm and realized that I didn't want to be sitting at a desk all day. And I had a background in film also, but didn't think of myself as a director. And I was like, what synthesizes all of my skills and allows me to not sit at a desk all day? And then I was like, oh, right. There's film and it's happening in San Francisco. That was another piece of it is that when I moved to San Francisco, after having grown up in New York, New Jersey, and then also a little bit in Southern California, I didn't know that there was a film community here. And Mm -hmm. so I thought that my choice to live here was to sort of relinquish any interest or any pathway into film. Oh, interesting. Interesting. And I was like, well, yeah, I love film, but I'm going to live in San Francisco because that's the most important thing to me. And I'm going to go to the San Francisco Art Institute. And yes, they have a film program and I can take some film classes, but it's not like a film city, Mm -hmm. which was just an inaccurate uh, or, or a misperception on my part. Do you feel like you had heard other people with that same perception or? Um, Yeah, maybe. Well, one thing I should have mentioned before is that my mom is an actor and my dad was a camera operator. That's how they met. Oh. So my family and then family friends and film and, and television and theater has always kind of been present in my life. And that was another aspect of it, too, where it was like a little too obvious. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, of course, Adrian's yeah. going to be a filmmaker. But but then I was like, no, no, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to do other <laughs> things. I'm, I'm going to break that mold. Even though I did tons of acting and theater mm-hmm. when I was younger, that was also when I had a fantasy of being an actor and then realized that I wanted to actually make money. <laughs> um, <laughs> and acting wasn't 
collaborative enough for me. I think that was another aspect mm. of it. And when I was doing d- creative direction and design, it was a very, in most cases, solitary job. And I was like, this isn't the best use of what I have to offer. I mean, I hope that you guys know and my community knows that I love people and mm-hmm. I love working with people. And sitting at a desk all day in my own head is just not the best use of me. Yeah. So that is what I always loved about theater because I would be on stage and then also I would direct the younger kids and I would do crew and whatever. And I was like, is there anything in life that is as collaborative as this? Of course, someone should have told me, film. (laughs) (laughs) But it was just, it was, again, it was like too obvious. Like with my mom and dad, like working in film and television, it was like, uh, yeah, like if I'm not going to be like a movie star, then I'll mm-hmm. do something else. What kind of exposure did you have with with your parents? Like, were you on set or was it just sort of like a, they had a job and you, you, yeah, knew, yeah. you knew enough I was, it? I was much to my mother's, I guess, chagrin. She thought I didn't get it when I was younger and mm. tried to shield me and my sister. Hmm. Like, you know, we weren't allowed to watch her on TV. We weren't allowed to, like, see her oh, sign autographs. Oh. I would sometimes overhear her, like, talking to friends about it. And even when I was, like, five years old, I was like, I get it. Like, mm-hmm. you're an actor. That's a job where you go and you read lines. And I see the process. And later in life, I kind of I checked in with her. I was like, did you think that I didn't get it when I was a kid, that, that I didn't understand what it was for you to be an actor? And she was like, well, I didn't know. Mm-hmm. A- and... There was some, I guess, concern about like she would always play a villain like on soap operas and stuff. And yeah. she and she like maybe thought that there would be some confusion about as a child, like about who she really was. Oh, or something. interesting. But I got it. Like yeah. I was totally yeah. I totally got it. I totally I mean, because I would go to set occasionally and yeah. see her. I went and watched my dad work also sometimes. Sometimes he would work in um, in soap. Sometimes he would do um, live events, sporting events, mm-hmm. um, sometimes commercials too, I think. So I got it and I saw it mm-hmm. from such a young age. And again, that was why I thought it was too obvious for that to be my career path because yeah. it was too familiar. Really, the turning point was being in San Francisco and through wonderful, deeply close friends like Devin Whetstone, who you guys know well, that I was able to have a lens, no pun intended, into <laughs> into the film community in San Francisco. Hmm. Because I didn't go to the Academy of Art, which has a pretty thriving film program, and a lot of people that we work with went to the Academy of Art. Yeah. And SFAI is a much more like theory-based and pretty conceptual art school. And it just wasn't like plugging people into careers in the same yeah. way that some of the other schools do, right. uh, which is a good and bad thing. My eyes were opened to this community, a community that I didn't really know was here. I mean, I definitely feel like there still is that stigma and perspective that the Bay Area is not where artistic film or anything happens. You right. Know? And I don't I don't know, like and maybe you give me your take on it. Like, do you feel like that perception is changing, still exists? Like, what's your take on it right now? My take that because of the influence of all the ad agencies in San Francisco, um, Silicon Valley obviously has a lot of needs in terms of commercial film production. And then shows like Looking mm-hmm. um, several years ago, Trauma, that terrible NBC show that was canceled <laughs> because they spent $2 million an episode on it. I mean, there's 
more than I certainly ever thought mm-hmm. was here. I mean, of course, I knew as a kid like that um, David Fincher's film The Game was shot here. There have been films that have been shot here, of course. Yeah. That's yeah. always yeah. vertigo. But in terms of there being like a consistent, thriving community that can support careers, yeah. that was the distinguishing factor. That's what I didn't know existed, mm-hmm. that there was a community that was big enough and business that was big enough to support careers and support production companies like yeah. this one, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think also Gavin Newsom and then maybe also Ed Lee, mayors of San Francisco, there were some sort of tax credits, I think, also for bringing film production to San Francisco. Yeah, they've definitely increased that recently. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I think that has had a positive influence as well. Mm-hmm. I know that uh, years ago, everyone was kind of rolling their eyes because I think there was a movie adaptation of the Broadway show Rent that was shot here mm-hmm. and they dressed it to look like New York. I think that happened a while ago. Yeah, oh, I didn't. Hear I think about it that. did, and everyone was like rolling their eyes because they were like, "Why didn't you? Sh- why didn't you shoot in New York?" And like, "Oh, it's cheaper in San Francisco," which you would never think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then there are cities like Vancouver and Pittsburgh that have yeah. done similar things. Right. They have incentivized film production to come there. Pittsburgh is huge now uh, for film. It's like the dropout town, and you can dress it to look like so many other cities. Hmm. I mean, you guys, I'm sure with the competitive landscape, I'm sure you've seen, it seems like production companies in the Bay Area are popping up like Mm -hmm. every month. There's new production companies. There's so many. Because, I mean, there are more now, right? Yeah. I mean, that's not just me. No, definitely. There are more. So I think all that by way of saying, I think that the film community here is thriving. It's growing. Mm -hmm. And then whether or not the goal is to do more creative filmmaking, Mm -hmm. I think just a byproduct of having more people working on film here is resulting in that. Yeah. Like we're, we're on the map more. Yeah. And that is great because I don't want to move. (laughs) (laughs) A friend of ours was talking about kind of the difference between somewhere like LA and, Mm -hmm. and the Bay Area is like, you can stumble into work more in LA because there's just so much of it. Mm-hmm. But up here, it's really about self-generation. Yes. Like to drive it if, yeah. you, if you want to see it happen. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? Any feeling about, about that? Well, I, I, it's, there is obviously more work in Los Angeles, but there are also millions more people mm-hmm. who want that work. So I don't know like what the mathematics of it are, but it does seem like depending on where your skills lie and who you know, it is easier to be like even a small fish in a small pond Mm -hmm. than a big fish in a big pond, right? As opposed to a small fish in an enormous pond. (laughs) Um, So I don't know. I mean, I think I do think... I mean, this is kind of a groaner to say, but it it really is true. It really just depends on who you know. Mm -hmm. To be very candid, I see a lot of very talented people who just don't get the work. And Mm -hmm. I see a lot of untalented people who are getting all the work. I mean, I think that exists in every industry. Yeah, for sure. That's not that's not unique to film. That's not unique to creativity. That is in every industry. And it's no different in film. And sometimes if you know the right people and you're not that talented, but you're, you know, someone's doing you a favor or you're a nice guy or whatever, you're going to get the job. Mm -hmm. And then there's some talent that just doesn't ever get seen because um, people aren't it's, it, they just don't know the right people or they don't know how to promote themselves in the right way or there's some other like personality issue yeah. because that's the other thing. I mean, it's not just about your work. Mm-hmm. I think that being able to to sell yourself and this is this is for any role in film, mm-hmm. any 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 job title in film. It's not just about the quality of your work. It's about a fiercely collaborative and high paced, high stakes environment where who you are and how you speak to people and how you interact with people makes a huge difference. Yeah. Makes a huge difference. I'd rather work with someone who is less talented or less experienced but has absolutely the right attitude that can be taught 
than someone who is just bringing the mood down and and is arrogant about their perhaps very real skill. Uh, But that's just not the way that I like to work. What you're saying and what we hear a lot from people that have, you know, been been on here talking to us is just like having it be a good experience is in a lot of ways can trump mm-hmm. <laughs> that. Yes, you know? exactly. Which is, I mean, for us, too, it's definitely something that's like everybody you work with, you can't necessarily like every single time and get along with every single time. Right. But it makes it better when you when you do and exactly. when you bring on people and you continue to work with people that you collectively had a real have a really good time with. Yeah, right? it's family. Yeah, no, absolutely. And especially when it's such a high stress career. Yes. Talk a little bit about just like what has your growth, your progression, like what has your kind of like path been once you've really sort of started to become very like, mm-hmm. I don't know, intentional about what, where you want to be going with it? Yeah, well, um, the biggest turning point was in 2013 when I decided to quit my full-time job, my very comfortable, good paying, fun, full-time job at a design consultancy, working with people that I loved, uh, with great benefits, unlimited paid time off, and a great work environment. Who would leave that? (laughs) Who would leave that? You're just like, as a matter of fact, I'm going back there now. Yeah, (laughs) right. So pretty much everything was dialed in, and I was happy, but it just wasn't. And I never thought I would say this, because I was like, who wants to be challenged at work? I just want to do it and go home. No. And it wasn't challenging, but but, but when I say it wasn't challenging... I don't mean that I, like, wanted to have problems at work all day. I mean I wanted to use my brain. Yeah, yeah. And I also wanted to not be sitting at a desk all day, which I mentioned earlier. In March 2013, I was rock climbing at my climbing gym, which I do extensively, and I fell and broke my ankle. And it was basically the worst experience of my life. And that broke me open and forced me to take an emotional inventory of my entire life Mm. and figure out what was working and what wasn't working. And I live alone. Uh, my mom came and stayed with me for about two and a half weeks right after uh, the accident and then my surgery. And then when she left and I was just on my own for a lot of the time because most of my friends had full-time jobs at that point. So during the day, I was just home alone, like couldn't do much of anything. It was a pretty bad injury. It wasn't just like put a cast on and you're fine. It was a, it was a pretty massive trauma, compound fracture, nine screws and a plate Damn. Yeah, it was bad. Wow. It was bad. I mean, yes, it could have been worse if, you know, my leg was ripped off. Sure, but, sure. But, but for what it was, or yeah. for what it was, it was it was very challenging for me. And I had never suffered that kind of injury. I had never suffered anything like that before in my life. Never a serious illness. Never more than like a skinned knee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and all that time alone, unable to do pretty much anything. I could barely even sit up because it hurt so much. I certainly couldn't stand because all of the all the fluid would pool in my leg and just, it was just, it was horrible. It was really bad. So it really forced me to look at my life and decide how I wanted to to rebuild it once I healed. Mm -hmm. And the thing that became so glaringly obvious was that I could not go back to a full-time job. And let me be really clear for the people who may be listening and don't know me super well. I am not one of those film people who has family money or made it in the tech world and is able to just like cruise on by mm-hmm. and and do film with that level of privilege. This was like, if I was going to go freelance, it was a big risk. Mm-hmm. If I was going to quit my job, it was a big financial risk. And the central motivator for, because I could have also just gotten a different job, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't about that. It was about film. Unless I get like 
the 0.0001% of film jobs that are like a staff director position, which is so rare, I'm not going to be able to have a full-time job if I want to do this. Mm -hmm. So all of this became clear as I was recovering from my injury in spring of 2013, and I started talking to people about it, and it really started to make sense. And I have to invoke and acknowledge Devin Whetstone again, who does not always dispense advice, but when he does, you better listen. And he said to me, Adrian, you're never going to get anywhere if you don't take any risks. Yeah. And that seems so simple. Everyone's heard that. Take risks, take risks. But in him saying that, I realized that I don't take risks. Mm -hmm. I just don't. I'm risk avoidant. I take the safe path. Now, some may be asking, like, how was going to art school the safe path? But for me, it was because I was confident in my skill as an artist mm -hmm. and had full-time jobs. I, was, I, was, I had a full-time job before I graduated college uh, at Free Range Studios. And when he said that, I was like, yeah, this is what taking a risk feels like. Mm -hmm. Taking a risk feels like I'm scared, but I'm going to do it anyway. Oh, yeah. Got it. So yeah. simple. Yeah. yeah. So thank you, Debbie. Um, <laughs> and so I, I did. So I quit my job. I told the CEO and owner of the company, Matt McGraw, I told him we went for a walk and I was like, this is the deal. And he was like, I get it. You're not going to get what you want here and you should go. And on July 19th, 2013, for the first time in my entire life at the age of 29, I had no school, no job, no summer camp, no internship, nothing, literally nothing since I was, you know, an infant. And I was like, wow, this is, I feel so like unhinged, but in a good way. It was like, what, this is amazing. I, I, I mean, wow. Okay. And then my friend Jirai also said something so smart when I was talking to him about it. It was like exactly the right thing to say at exactly the right point. And I told him what I was doing. And well, he had worked at this company also. And so he knew I was leaving. And he said, sometimes a man needs to hunt for his food. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, Jirai, you're so brilliant. It's so true. And I've never had to hunt for my food. Hmm. It's uh, Which is not to say I've been spoon fed. It's just always been I've done what I needed to do. Yeah. And before I ever had to hunt for it, I just... Everything was in order. It was always in order. Everything was always set up. And that's why there were no gaps in my employment, no gaps in school. Um, when there were gaps in school, actually, I was fully employed in between school. So, But it was all ultimately to allow me the flexibility to do film. It was because I didn't want to turn 30 and realize that I was on this path to complacency mm -hmm. and to being scared about money and letting that motivate my decisions and, oh, well, I want to stay in San Francisco, so I have to have a full-time job because it's expensive to live here and, and blah, blah, blah. But I took that leap. From there, it just happened. I just started talking to people and small jobs came in and, and then creative projects. The short film that I did with, uh, with Blake Bogosian and, uh, and Devin Whetstone also, we, we worked on that, obviously, and made that happen. That f We just finished that a few weeks ago. I'm sure you guys saw the trailer. Yeah, yeah, we did. It is finally done, and we are so thrilled with it. That was one of the early projects that began when I, was, when I went freelance. Wow. Slowly but surely, I started making better relationships with people and putting myself out there and, and started booking jobs. Um, and this past year has been has been great and, and big for that. I was at a really busy summer and traveled uh, to many cities for two different jobs. And I can't believe, frankly, 
But I'm very proud that now, three and a half years later, every dime that I have earned to support myself freelancing has been from my creative skills, from film, from directing, writing, photography, from design. And that was always the goal when I went to art school. The goal was to be able to support myself with creative work. And I didn't know if I'd be able to do that because I saw a lot of people who would go to art school and then, you know, be like go into finance or go to get an MBA and be like, okay, I'm done like, you know, smearing paint on the wall. Yeah. (laughs) And now I have to get serious. Yeah. But I didn't do that. And I don't want to go to grad school. And I don't want to go back to school. Uh, I mean, any money I would spend on grad school, I would just make a film. That's, I mean, honestly, that's what I say to people when they they do grad school and film. I'm like, just make a movie like why, just make a movie why are yeah. you going to grad school just make a movie I mean, <laughs> which is easier said than done yeah, i get it's, it it's not but, like it's not know. like going to social work where you have to get an msw or whatever it's totally like, yeah. just make a film yeah or 10 yeah yeah so i have no desire to go back to school uh, which is not to say that i don't want to learn it's just that i learn every day by doing what i love doing I went to a liberal arts college that g- didn't give grades. They gave evaluations. Right. And so, like, I realized very shortly after I graduated that that secured that I could never get into grad school because nobody <laughs> reads that shit. And it was just like, all right, well, here it goes. You yeah. got an orange blossom in <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't transfer, I'm yeah. afraid. I think that's the thing, too. It's like it's what we're doing is so experiential. Mm-hmm. And it's also so much of it is up to interpretation. Yeah. So it's really like you have to feel it and then you have to see, hear it to know if it's working or not, mm-hmm. you know. And there's a point where, like, I personally don't think anybody can they can give you advice, but they can't give you that gut feedback of seeing something and right. knowing if it's you or not. Right. Right. Do you have a clear sense of, are you still figuring out kind of like what it is that is your like aesthetic, your voice, anything like that? Like um, A couple things on that that I think would be good to talk about. So the first thing is I got into a lively and enlightening discussion with uh, a close friend of mine, John, who actually studied film. He doesn't work in film now, but he studied film about Westworld. Hmm. What came up for me, in the in the conversation, he knows me very well and knows my taste and what I'm into. And what he articulated, which I've already, which I've always known, and I have actually described it myself, but it was a reminder that what excites me about film and television and commercials and really any kind of filmmaking is creating experiences and worlds and characters that are real. I find the real world to be a lot more interesting than Fantasyland. Hmm. And that kind of influenced how I viewed Westworld, which he pointed out very intelligently is is very much like a genre show. Yeah. Um, And for that reason, it was less compelling to me because it was all just so much Mm make-believe. So I don't think I want to have an aesthetic. However, I do think that what's most interesting to me and is clearly evident from my short film is I'm much more interested in capturing a world that feels so painfully real that you feel like you're there than creating something that is so impossible that it's a form of escapism. I have always been interested in using creativity, any form of art, as a tool to spark discussion, Mm -hmm. to be controversial, to raise questions, not answer them, to make people angry, to make people sad, to make people happy. But I think that 
we have entered, an era in American politics and in the social workings of this country where stories are the most important thing, including stories that are not true. Yeah. People believe stories mm -hmm. and people want stories. Stories are the way that we describe our world, the way that we describe our politicians, the way that we describe our leaders, the way that we describe our, our own lives. Mm -hmm. And that has always been true. Stories have always existed, of course. But now stories, particularly those that are not true, have taken over in a way that is uh, really harmful. So what does that mean? That means that people like us and, and filmmakers are being called to action because that doesn't mean that we all need to be like making political movies and like, you know, teaching the unenlightened masses. But it means that we have to find stories and tell stories that are rooted in truth and venerate the truth because the truth is now not valued and reality is not valued. Yeah. And so that inspires me even more to express things that are so real. And I don't mean documentary in particular. I mean, that's another thing. That's, mm -hmm. that's, that's part of it. But I do mean creating reality, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. to speak. And what I see, one of several pathways for me is to be a truth seeker in film and to be a truth teller in film because we need more of that. And how do we engage people and inspire people and compel people with the truth? with what is really happening. Mm -hmm. Not a fake story, not a fake headline, not a fake narrative, but what is real? How do we show people what's real? Part of that is with documentary work, mm -hmm. for sure. And there is a call to action for documentary filmmakers as well, who need to show what is really happening in communities, in Washington, in state legislatures, so how do we use film and storytelling to inspire people to respect and venerate the mm -hmm. truth? And even if they don't respect and venerate it, just to see the truth? Yeah. yeah. And that's where I see a role for myself because that's something that has always been important to me and I've always been an advocate of political engagement and of uh, civic engagement and of being aware and having your eyes open all the time. And now that is more important than ever. Mm -hmm. And um, it is my hope and also my expectation that the film community, the journalism community, the writing community, and I mean and music, pretty much everything is going to step up because they need to step up. And I want to harness the power of storytelling, specifically in film, and that includes commercials and everything, right, to help restore progress, because that's what we are losing. We've lost progress. We've lost truth. We've lost civility. Mm -hmm. And we as filmmakers can try, at least, to help redirect the course of American history, mm -hmm. really, because this is a big moment. Unfortunately, it's a big moment that I didn't want it to be, but it is, and it has to be now because that's what's going to get us to step up and act. Well, it's a, it's a tricky thing because I feel like there's a version of it that's still entertainment and sensationalism. Mm -hmm. There's a version of it that is whatever your message is, you're banging over people's heads. Mm -hmm. And then there's, you know, it's like to be able to find that line is a very delicate thing.
Do you feel like for you, you've seen a film that did that, especially when you're when you're making a distinction between because I'm totally with you, too. That's like there's documentary, but then there's also the sort of like a narrative story that can bring up issues like that's. Yeah. Yes. It will be no surprise to you. Moonlight. I was just thinking Moonlight as you were talking about it. It will be Moonlight for sure this year. Yeah. There are dozens of issues, hundreds of issues, maybe thousands of issues. That film raises a big one. And Barry Jenkins has created a masterpiece. Yeah. It is a masterpiece. Couldn't agree more. I saw it twice in theaters. I will see it again. It is so spectacular and works on so many levels. Yeah. And that's the other thing, because it is effective as purely entertainment. Mm -hmm. It is effective as a beautiful, albeit painful story. It is effective as escapism. It is also effective as a political tool to expose a harsh reality in our country and in the world. Mm -hmm. It's not unique to just the United States. And it is effective as a piece of art to inspire and to ask questions. And it was so incredible to see that film work on so many levels, Mm -hmm. the levels that I just described, and nail it in every way. That's what I'm talking about. I remember watching scenes of that movie, like, you know, just sitting in the theater thinking how, oh, this scene could totally veer into yeah. some heavy handed shit. And it's so many times in the movie where it, it just didn't. It just everything was just perfect. Mm-hmm. Like the performances, like everything, it's like so subtle and also so direct at the right times. Mm-hmm. I remember just seeing the trailer and obviously seeing Kiva working on it and stuff, but like, but seeing the trailer and thinking immediately like, I haven't seen this story before. Mm-hmm. Why haven't I seen this story before? Because I know it's out there. And then so to see the film and just like, uh, just be in the world and just be like, uh, it's just everything was perfect about that movie. I, yeah, I can't stop talking about it. You haven't seen that story before because no one has had the courage to tell it. Right. This is what I'm talking about, is having the courage to tell those stories. That's not a documentary, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. We do need documentary, too, and I don't want to, to miss that. Right. I don't sure. want anyone to think that I'm discarding documentary, which is going to be even more important now. But a film like Moonlight describes an issue so delicate and potentially dangerous and complex and intersectional. And Barry has such courage to tell that story and not soft pedal it. Yeah. And that, and again, that's what I'm talking about. Like, yeah. We're not soft pedaling anymore. We're getting real. We're doing it all the way. We're not worrying about offending people because that didn't work. And this is what works. And he got it. Yeah. And he did it. And everyone who contributed to that film got it and knows. And that is setting the bar really high for yeah. film and for television and for commercials. This yeah. isn't just about the cinema. This is about everything. And... I have not seen all of it, but also shows like Transparent obviously take on that kind of complex intersectional issues. But Moonlight was so, so squarely balanced, the craft of filmmaking, Mm -hmm. mastery of acting and performance, writing, and a message so important and so painful, really, at just the right time. I'm in awe. I'm in awe of it. And every piece of it was so beautifully constructed. And to have something that does that and also feels like it's actually propelling us forward is so big. And that's that's what we need to be making is films that propel us forward, telling stories that propel us forward because they start conversations and they expose parts of our community and of our culture that need to be seen. And that's not always parts that we want to see. It's interesting because I'm 
I'm understanding it, but I'm still hearing versions of it that are misrepresenting it. That is the word empathy. Mm -hmm. Like, I think more and more that's something that like part of what you're saying is like, you know, documentary is going to give us information. Mm -hmm. But I think this like deeper understanding of just people and humanity and giving us a place to like be more connected with each other. For me, like the nuts and bolts politics aside, that's the thing that really stood out to me the most was that there was just no understanding. Like so many like conversations on Facebook, so much just stuff that I'm hearing of like fighting is like not wanting to take the time to really understand a different point of view. Yes. And it was so fascinating to me to see that. That's also like I think that it's like we need to go deeper. We need to go deeper into what humanity is, what a community is, what are these little details that we just gloss over because we're trying to tell this story that's kind of hitting the like tropes, you know, which is how we get into stereotyping and, and you know, everything else. It's like, how do we go deeper into that and how do we elevate that so that we can walk out of the theater, walk out of an experience having just a little bit more understanding. And to see, not just in the issues raised by Moonlight, but in every issue. Well, what do you really want? Mm-hmm. What do you really want? What Chiron in Moonlight wants is intimacy and love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't everyone want that? And what people who may disagree with us politically, uh, what do they want? They want to feed their families. They want their children to grow up in communities that they're proud of. Now, to be very clear, I don't think that this absolves them sure. from making poor decisions, but let's find common ground. However, I will also add the caveat that finding common ground is not a new concept. And also, this is not about us singing Kumbaya and reaching across the aisle. For sure. Right, because that also didn't work. But I do agree, AJ, that empathy and seeing stories that maybe, depending on the audience, totally upend what you think of someone and what you think of why they make the decisions they make or how they've gotten into the situation that they've gotten into. That empathy is critical. Mm -hmm. And my friend Ian Levine, who you guys know, film editor, he raised this point uh, really beautifully when we were talking about this other project that we're working on called Listening Sessions. And this was actually coincidentally on the day of the election. Uh, We were talking about this uh, when we had a reasonable expectation that Hillary Clinton was going to be the 45th president of the United States. And he said, haven't we seen right now that people just aren't listening? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talking, yeah. Yeah. plenty of talking, yeah. no shortage of talking, but listening is gone. What other mediums do you have where you really can, you have a good chance of getting people to listen, but film and television, yeah. you're, gonna, you're probably going to get people because if it's compelling, you're going to want to watch yeah. uh, and you're going to want to be engaged. Mm-hmm. And that's how, that's our call to action as filmmakers. Yeah. And I want everyone in certainly in in my community here in the Bay Area to to hear that and feel that and find ways, not every day, but when the time is right, to contribute their skill and their craft of filmmaking in whatever department, whatever role towards advancing progress. Mm -hmm. Because we're taking a big detour from progress right now, big old detour. And it's going to be up to the people who get it and really care about progress and who have the tools We have the tools, right? Mm -hmm. And the one with the tools does the work because we can. So we have to. Not every industry has the tools to advance progress and to to create culture, but we do. So I want that to happen. And I am so grateful that 
a film like Moonlight exists now because I hope, I mean, certainly Barry will, I'm sure, continue to impress us with his work, but I hope that it opens the door and is a foothold into more films like that uh, because of the resounding success that that film has already seen. Um, I th- I just saw yesterday six Golden Globe nominations, I Crazy. think. Crazy, it's awesome. Uh, there will for sure be some Oscar play. Most definitely. Most definitely. And that kind of visibility about something that is really very dark and sad is important. And it's not a historical story. It's not one that took place 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, but it's happening right now, today, at this second. And that's what we need to be focusing on. And I I love that the movie, it's, you know, through A24 and not like a a mega, you know, so that's going to get probably more people paying attention to the movies that they're putting out, but also that this is a film that doesn't have any major stars attached to it. So really it is the story and the heart of it that's getting the attention, mm-hmm. not, you know, I mean, Mahershal Ali's amazing, and he, I hope to, you know, I hope he gets something out of the, of the mm-hmm. awards and stuff, but, um, but yeah, it's no major stars attached to this thing, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. so, I, yeah, I hope that that piques people's interest, that, you know, based on the story alone, based on the heart alone, this movie has gone so far. It's interesting also, because you mentioned Mahershal Ali, and also Andre Holland, who plays Kevin, and then um, Naomi Harris, and uh, I know certainly for uh, Mershala and and uh, Andre, they came from television, right? They like Andre Holland was on The Nick. Yeah, Mershala Ali was obviously on House of Cards. Yeah. yeah, and he's from here. Actually, he's from Oakland. We did Kicks. Yeah, yeah. of course he did Kicks. Was, yeah, as well. It's so cool that there was just that connect. Yeah, at the yeah. same time. Yeah. yeah, I think that leads it. And then Naomi Harris was she on Empire or some one of those shows? I don't know. I actually, okay. yeah, I hadn't I'm not, seen I'm not sure her before, but I was surprised to learn that she's. English. Oh, yeah. really? Uh, yeah, I was yeah, just like, what? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, she was on some other show. It may not have been Empire, but um, I think that that also like leads into something that we had we've also talked about before, which is that television is the new cinema, and sure. that the rise of television as a valid and respected form of of long-form filmmaking, Mm -hmm. of telling a story over 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 hours, um, like a good book that you can always go back to, exploring characters with such depth um, and exploring stories and arcs with such depth because you have so much time, that is really exciting for our medium and for our work because um, it's going to allow just a lot more... I think intensity and beauty and people to build stronger relationships with characters because they're not just, I mean, obviously Moonlight did it in, you know, whatever it was, two and a half hours in a theater, but imagine if that was 10 hours mm-hmm. um, or 20 or 30 or 40. So that's, that's really exciting too, because uh, I think that will have, that has and will continue to have implications for how we get to tell stories. Are you interested in, in yourself in that, in, in long form storytelling? Yes. Absolutely. In fact, right now, if I could craft my dream job, it would be working on a television show, like mm-hmm. a, like like one of these like super beautifully crafted, like season one of True Detective, mm-hmm. which is a masterpiece. And then What a Fall from Grace in season two. <laughs> I didn't even see it. Cause everyone don't. Was just, yeah, everyone was just like, don't, don't. see it. Don't it's a waste of time. It. Yeah. But season yeah. one is, is one really, is... it's just so masterful. Um, and that was what, seven or eight hours. Um, I do love House of Cards, which is now at like, I don't know, 50 hours or something. I would love to tell stories over more than just mm-hmm. a few hours 
and that is super interesting to me. I have uh, a friend who's a television director, and I've shadowed her a couple times, and it's a little different depending on what kind of show it is, but it's also very much the same yeah. as making a movie. Now, it wasn't always that way. For sure. Now it is. And we have people like David Chase, uh, who created The Sopranos uh, back in the 90s, to, to thank for that. Because that was a really a new and different way of making television at the time. But now it's really the, the gold standard. Well, there's definitely a lot of avenues to tell those stories now, yes. too. Yeah. I mean, now it's like everyone is a content generator or whatever the hell they call it. Everyone's got their original content now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's so many opportunities for those stories to come out. There's an interesting thing that sort of in talking about Moonlight and you calling out a true detective that is also like less about the avenue but more about just the process that's really fascinating to me. I think it's the same thing that we were talking about too that's like how do you not be heavy handed about it? How do you not tell a story that is banging somebody over the head? I feel like True Detective is such a good example of just there's a breakdown in not understanding what it is Mm -hmm. that you've created Mm -hmm. to sustain. And I think it's something that's so challenging in process that is when you're writing a story, when you're making it, how do you know if you're on or off the mark? What are your thoughts on that? Because it's such a like, man, like, and that's, I think that's part of the responsibility and the work that is so difficult is that you can be totally off. What do you do? What do you think about that? That is a fantastic question. And I have a lot to say on it. Just because we have brought up these examples, and then I'll get into my answer more specifically, what coincidentally True Detective and Moonlight do so beautifully is they are comfortable with stillness. Hmm. Think of in Moonlight, so many scenes where there was not really very much dialogue because it wasn't about exposition. It wasn't about every word. It was about everything else. And there is such subtlety in that. And it's a hard thing to know when it's right. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, I'm confident in saying that in most cases, we try to do too much. I think that specifically Not in every department, but I think specifically performance. I think that, and I have an acting background, so I can speak somewhat to this, and then also from directing actors. I think that actors in particular often try to do more than needs to be done because they want to make it seem like they're worth the amount that they're being paid, Yeah, right? It's like, I have to give you something. Mm -hmm. You don't actually have to give me anything. You just have to be. That's what we want. We want you to just... Be, just do it. Just pull it back and just do it. I remember in theater in high school, one of the best notes that we would get constantly from directors is the illusion of the first time. This is the first time these characters are saying these words. This is the first time this world has been created. This is the first time these people are meeting. This is the first time they're having this conversation. That is fantastic. The illusion of the first time, right? Yeah. And I have held on to that since high school. I may may have even learned it in middle school because I started doing theater in fifth grade. And the illusion of the first time is something that is often forgotten Yeah. Mm-hmm. because you're trying to what my mom calls acting with a capital A. <laughs> That's a common one. Acting. Yeah. I'm putting oh, yeah. quotes around oh, yeah. acting with a capital yeah. A. I'm acting now. Cool. You're acting now. But that's not what I'm looking for. Yeah. I'm looking for you to just be. And performances in True Detective season one, performances in Moonlight, performances in a lot of what's out there right now, what is beautiful about them to me is the subtlety. Yeah. I would say Anthony Hopkins in Westworld, mm-hmm. to me, he was the best thing about that show because he's subtle. He understands subtlety. So if you're worried about missing the mark, to get back to your question, if I'm questioning it, I usually err on the side of simplicity because as filmmakers, we're 
in most cases, I think we're trying to do too much. Yeah. And that's because we get it, right? We see the huge landscape. We have our vision and we want to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, simplify. Simplify, simplify, simplify. Uh, I remember when I was having auditions for my short film uh, years ago, and uh, this one girl who ended up being one of the finalists for the lead female character, she was great, but she came in and I saw she had her sides. I swear to God, she must have gone through six pencils with the amount of notes she had scrawled, (laughs) scrawled all over these two damn pieces of paper. And I saw it from 20 feet away when I was sitting at the desk and she comes in and And I didn't say anything because I was like, all right, I'm going to have to do a little work here. I let her do the scene, one go through. It was just too much. She was good. She was good. But it was, again, acting with a capital A. And I was like, all right, now that you've gotten that out of your system, put the sides away, Mm -hmm. forget the lines, forget all the stage direction that you wrote for yourself, forget it. I don't care. It's not about that. Now let's do the scene. She's like, oh, well, what if I I was like, no, girl. Yeah. Chill. (laughs) That's not what I want to see. I don't want to see that. And she did it. And it was, of course, 100 times better because it was raw. It was real. Again, that goes back to what I was talking about earlier, which is what's real is so much more interesting to me. And I think that little anecdote of that actor coming in with her script covered in notes for herself and then me directing her to abandon all of that and that the quality was increased. You can take that and apply that thinking to a lot of filmmaking. There are plenty of areas where you have to be very precise and have to know exactly what you're doing I think yeah. in the camera department. And maybe you do need a page of notes so that you can remember exactly what you're doing yeah. for a complex move or whatever. But I'm not talking about those kinds of details. I'm talking bigger about your vision. If you think you might miss the mark, just pull it back. Yeah. Just pull it back and focus on the essence. What is the essence of what you're trying to express here, whether it's a music video or a commercial or a television show or a movie or whatever? And don't try to give it too much because oftentimes the space that is left in you not over-directing or you not making too many choices is where the magic is. Yeah. That's the magic. And that is sometimes lost on people who maybe are newer and think that they need to inject their creativity into every aspect mm-hmm. of the work, Yeah, that often creates such a rigid kind of creative structure that it just feels inauthentic. And again, authenticity is what's most compelling to me. But authenticity and realism is, I think, the hardest thing to actually express because it involves letting go. And one of the most, maybe the most inspiring quote I've ever heard in my life was delivered at exactly the right time from my dear mother when I was prepping for a job a couple years ago and was freaking out because we only had a very specific amount of time and it looked like it might rain. And I was like, what are we going to do? Like, we we don't have, we can't, like, there are no contingencies, like, if it rains, like, whatever. And she sent me this quote from Eric Frum that goes, creativity requires the courage to let go of certainties. Yeah. Something that you could probably come up with if you were forced to think about it. Yeah. But hearing it so clearly, Mm -hmm. again, it was like when Devin told me to take risks. It's like, yeah, we've all heard that before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when it's focused squarely on exactly what you're doing and breaks your head out of whatever trap it's in, it can be the most simple and obvious thing that actually is enlightening. And when she said that, when I was on the phone, like while I was prepping, I I was like, yeah. (laughs) that's our job our job is to let go of certainties because if things you have to plan i'm not saying don't plan plan everything have contingencies have it all ready to go but if something comes up and it rains or 
you lose a location or you lose an actor or the agency fires you or whatever it is, your job as a creative person is to just make it work. Yeah. Just do it. And when I realized that, I was like, yeah, that's talk about why we do this. Like, that's why we do this, because we're capable of that. And if you're not capable of that, then you need to do some work till you can get there. Right. Because this industry is not all about control. Right. Because you don't have control over a lot of things. People may think that it is. A director may think that it is about having control over every department and every move and every everything. Ugh, not the way I like to work. Not at all. There's no magic in that. Unless you're Steven Soderbergh and you're executive producing, Shooting directing, it. <laughs> DPing, camera operating, editing, yeah. and composing the score. Okay. There's a point where I just stopped watching, but he was one of my favorite directors for a while because of that flexibility, because yeah. something new would come his way and he would see that it was better. And I think that that's the other thing, too. It's like, you know, I don't know that he necessarily kept that and he kind of did other. He got way too experimental for, for my taste. But like, I think that's the thing that like the idea of a director having vision mm -hmm. is misinterpreted as just this rigidity to what they had in their head. Yes. You know, exactly. And that's not what it's about. Exactly. And to be open and to take something that's in front of you and turn it into, because you never know if shit's going to hit the fan. And mm -hmm. then you look down and you realize that element is what the story you're telling needs to be, you know, yes. to be able to go like, you could look at that and say like, this isn't my movie. But then you could look at that and say, no, wait, actually what's being given to me. Can if it hadn't rained that day, exactly. X wouldn't have happened. Exactly. And X wouldn't mm -hmm. have happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, but sort of embracing the uncertainty a little yeah. bit out there. And it's and yeah. hindsight I think is the other thing that you really are never gonna know until you actually look at until everything you do it, after yeah. it's all put together. You're like, oh fuck, it was It's way better, right. <laughs> and 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 I don't wanna I don't I don't wanna be misunderstood here. I'm not saying like don't rehearse. No. Don't yeah, like yeah. rehearse every camera move, don't lock every location, don't like pre produce the hell out of every job. All of those things need to be done. Yeah. But but it's also the director's job, should something go awry, mm -hmm. to just figure it out and yeah. be okay with that. Well, I think it's that last 5% or, or maybe even less that really is the like what makes it magic in the moment. Mm -hmm. What makes it – what gives it that little thing that actually heightens it into art or whatever else, you know? It's like there's, right. a, there's that thing that you just – you can't expect – or you rehearse and you rehearse and rehearse, but it's like you have that one last thing that you can tell your actor right before you roll cameras mm -hmm. that just cracks the whole thing open, right? Yes. When I used to write scripts, uh, like the script for this short film and like scripts for commercials and stuff, stuff like that, I would way over direct in the writing because I had a very clear vision of what I wanted. And so I would write that into the action blocks. And your poor actors are trying to hit like 50 different beats and may misinterpret them, may mm -hmm. not get them, no matter how much explication you've done in the writing. Yeah. But it's not about that. It's not about that. Like that's what you do on the day in the moment to get an organic response, an mm -hmm. authentic response out of your actors so they're not trying to remember how you described the way they move their hand or something. That allows you as a filmmaker, I think in some ways for those that can handle this, that space can be a relief because it's like, just chill, bro. Like, yeah. you got this. Yeah. <laughs> Don't try to do everything. Don't try to do the absolute most. Just find the purity of what you're trying to accomplish. Just let it happen. And maybe it won't happen exactly the way that you want. I also think that there's something to be said about, like, when you have so much control and you could be so exactly precise, you also, like, suck the life out of it. Like, you have to give it this organic element to it. You've got to give it a little bit of chaos that lets you have that 
spontaneousness. Like there's some stuff that you just can't control. Yeah, there's definitely some filmmakers that have avoided this, but I'm always really conscious of like a director has or a filmmaker, a group of filmmakers, whoever it is, has like a really great hit or they do, a, you know, something works really well. Yeah. Sadly, the first thing that pops in my head is... Uh, Peter Jackson doing Lord of the Rings trilogy uh-huh. yeah. where they gave him a huge uh-huh. budget uh-huh. and he but he accomplished this amazing thing and made these three incredible films that mm-hmm. made a fuck ton of money so then they're like well let's do more and yeah. instead and this time we're, we're gonna back off because you're God clearly and you can just make whatever you want and he made three shitty movies yeah. because like yeah. and I yeah, it's because he, he wasn't given the reins he wasn't and some people need yeah. that yeah. you know yeah. like so I don't know what I'm trying to say but I think there's a little bit of like a when things are completely in your control too it's, yeah. it's mm-hmm. not exactly mm-hmm. right either and some people avoid that obviously Wes Anderson whatever also but, this is collaborative yes yeah. this is collaborative the whole point is that it's collaborative and that's why previously people have asked me to like direct NDP things before. And I'm like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. And it's not because I'm going to be stressed out. It's because I want another set of eyes. The best work, in my opinion, unless you're someone like Steven Soderbergh, that's few and far between, is in the magic between multiple people creating something together. Yeah. That's also why I left my full-time job is because I was sick right. of doing it all by myself. I don't want to do it on my own. Right. Yeah. I just don't think the work is as good. That doesn't mean that I'm not going to know what I want and get what I want, but it means it's going to be influenced by how other people see the material because yeah. they're going to see it differently than me. And I have been privileged to work with such talented people here in the Bay Area and beyond that have not only there's been a symbiotic relationship where you make each other better, but also then the work is better. And that's what I love about collaboration. And I'm not a director that wants it to always be my way because sometimes someone will mention something and I'll be like, that's brilliant. We're doing exactly what the PA said, you know, whatever. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so PAs, tell Adrian yeah, exactly so, what you think uh, you oh, should Jesus. do. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> no, oh, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> the spirit of collaboration is ultimately what I think makes the best work because sometimes the way to get to what I want is a little bit different and is improved by sharing that process with other people. Also because I open my heart to it. I can tell someone like, you need to collaborate more and they'll be like, "Uh, how do I do that? Some people just can't do it. But if you can and you can open your heart more to the people that you work with and the people that have eyes on your, your script or your treatment or your edit or whatever, then I think that ultimately you're gonna create things that are more compelling and more meaningful and hopefully um, tell stories that create more culture Mm -hmm. like Moonlight that keep us moving forward in some way Mm -hmm. like Moonlight, right? And that's why we do this because not every industry is making cultural and social progress or has the power to rather, but the ones that do have a lot of work to do over the next four, eight, 12, 16, 20 years, that means a lot of us are going to need to work together and we're going to need to come up with some big ideas to change the landscape in whatever way we can towards truth-seeking and empathy and listening and stillness and beauty. Thanks to Adrian Elliott for being on our, what do we call this, a show, podcast, episode? Thanks to Adrian Elliott for being on this show. On our, on our showcase. On our showcase. Our master's class. Yeah. <laughs> um, Where we just listen to people. <laughs>
uh, just a little editorial note, um, since we mentioned that Moonlight, uh, we mentioned Golden Globes and Oscars. Uh, since our conversation, Moonlight has won the Golden Globe for Best Picture and is now in the running for eight different Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Best Cinematography, Director, Writing, Supporting Actor, Actress, and uh, Music. So lots of amazing. Really exciting. Yeah, it's really cool. One of these days we are going to get members of that <laughs> film on. Uh, and then just be like, remember yeah. when like that happened? It was totally going to be a Chris That Barley was moment. pretty cool. <laughs> hey, remember, we talk about your movie all the time. And so to close out our show, we have uh, an epilogue. This is another, just to kind of continue on the music thing for a little bit, this was another piece that was made for the gallery showing that we did by a good friend of mine and ours, uh, Adam Davis. So take a listen. All right, bye. Bye. Thank you.